Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. The curse is undone, amen? I, you know, I know you guys would like me to one of these Sundays is just to say amen, that's good enough, we can go home based on after that worship time together, but um, we're going to have some teaching of his word. How many of you have watched The Chosen on, uh, it's all in all sorts of things now, but um, I know some of you, um, my wife and I have watched it, or are watching, actually we're finally getting around to watching season three, we, we binge watched a little bit this week, but... Um, and I know that some of you don't watch that kind of thing, and, and I respect that. I and mean, some people say, you know, I, I've, I've even talked to a pastor. He thinks it's kind of idolizing certain things. And, and you know, I, I think it's fine to watch. I think you, well, here's the thing I want to say about it, though. Remember that it didn't all happen the way it is in The Chosen, right? That, that we're not sure that, right, Matthew had whatever he has, kind of autism, right? We're not sure of their ages. We, we think they were younger. We're not sure of everything that took place. In fact, we were watching it last night, and, and one of the things that my wife and I have been kind of dealing with, I've, I've shared it in here, you know, sometimes we clap for the band, and, and we've kind of had this little ongoing little debate, should we clap for the band? Are we clapping for them? Are we clapping for God? Or, you know, and not a big deal, but we watched in The Chosen last night, and I don't know, Jesus spoke, and everybody clapped or something like that. And we, we Googled, when did clapping start? It was not until like the third century, so that's not, probably didn't happen in the first century. They weren't clapping for anybody at that time, probably. That really started with Romans and, and, and kind of plays and things like that, and they were, people were told to applaud, and so probably didn't happen. But you know, who cares, right? But it's very important that when we think about, when we read Scripture, that we put ourselves there as much as possible, that we understand who we're reading about, who the people are, where they're at, who the intended audience is. If there's a promise or a command, who's it to or who's it for? Not every promise in Scripture is to us. Not every command is to us. Sometimes it was to somebody specifically for a specific reason, and so it it goes to them. Right, And so much, especially in American Christianity, and especially if you look at, I would say, other things like the Word of Faith movement and things like that, we pull scriptures out and say, oh, we're going to take this, right? I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. No, you can't, right? I guess you could if God wanted you to, but that's not the point of that text, right? It was a matter of contentment. I can, I can have much and be content in Christ. I can have little and be content in Christ. I can do all that in Christ, that's what the point of that was. And there's multiple things in Scripture and, and passages that we do that with. And so today, as we kind of continue here in our study of Mark, I want to remind you where we were last week and then kind of do a little bit of timeline uh, this week. And, and for some of you, this may be new to you. Um, you, may not understand, you may not realize some of this, and so you maybe pay close attention here. So what's the first thing we want to see here is that... Um, Jesus is the gospel of Mark. What do we find out? The gospel of Mark is the shortest of the four gospels. It is the most translated book of all the world in all the world. Um, it, it applies, like who's the author? We talked about that last week. We, the gospel of Mark. We think Mark's the author. He is the author. However, he's, we believe he's writing for Peter. 
we don't think Mark was an eyewitness to the life of Jesus, not in the way that Peter was. He was probably a young man, and Peter could have been fairly young as well, but, and he's writing, and, and Peter is kind of sharing what's happened and what he remembers, and, and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and, and God's you know, working in them, they're writing this down for us today. And, but who was the primary audience at the time? The primary audience that Peter was really writing to or Mark was writing to was in the Roman kind of culture, the Roman church, and the Gentile world. And that's why you don't see a lot of things in here like you do in Matthew about Jesus' lineage and all of the, the Jewish customs and all of those things because the audience wasn't Jews primarily in this gospel. It was for the Gentiles. And so we see that this relationship between Peter and and. Um, John Mark, we would say John Mark is his kind of his surname. We, we saw that, we covered that last week a little bit. We talked about it in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. As Peter's writing that letter, and we're even thinking it may have been written kind of by someone else, by maybe a, uh, Barnabas or Apollos or somebody, um, or Silas, I mean, and, and transcribed it for him. But it says, she who is Babylon, which is talking about, um, and who is chosen, talking about the church there, who sends greetings, and so does Mark, my son. And so here we see this relationship between Peter and what he says is Mark, his son. Now, not biological, but it was a spiritual relationship, almost a sonship that here Peter is talking about. And so what else did we say last week? We, so we, we know the authors. We kind of have those. It's Peter and, and John Mark are writing this. We know the audience who it's directed to, the Gentile world, the, specifically probably in Rome there and maybe even the church. Small gospel. It's, it's really kind of high level in some places. He's not going to touch on everything. There's a lot, obviously, that happens that we don't even see in the gospels over Jesus' life. And then what did we look at last week? In the first 13 verses, we looked at how God the Father affirms God the Son. We see that he basically um, uh, affirms his coming. He says he's, he is going to come. We see he's been announced by in the Old Testament. He's going to now be kind of made way for. His way is going to be prepared for John the Baptist is coming and, and saying the Lord is coming. We see Jesus get baptized by John the Baptist. God affirms his son as Lord, and so we he see that he's affirming him as divine and God in the flesh. He affirms his majesty. He affirms that he has the power to change our lives, to transform us. Jesus gets affirmed publicly, and then he has divine authority, right? All authority has been given to him, right? So let's, let's kind of back up, and I hope I can explain this in a way that makes sense, because it can get confusing. There's a timeline here, and so sometimes we're very, most of us are pretty chronological, and so when we read things, we want, so we go, okay, this happens and this happens, and we kind of look at Scripture and we can see that a little bit, but sometimes there's big gaps between this statement and this statement. And while in some respects maybe that doesn't matter, sometimes it, once again it helps us to understand the text. So what do we see? Jesus comes from Nazareth to the Jordan River, kind of east of Jerusalem, and, and gets baptized in the Jordan. 
And at this point, he's, he's new on the scene. Nobody really knows him all that much. He gets baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And, and we see some things that happen here. But in, in, then we're going to see something that Mark is going to jump way in the future, almost a year in the future, in verse 14. And we don't, we don't get that when we read it. It seems like it's immediate. So I want to go back and fill that gap in a little bit. So here we see that Jesus gets baptized, and John has some disciples, because he's kind of a, a teacher, and these disciples, he has some followers that are following him, and, and they're with him there at the Jordan when he baptizes Jesus. We're not sure all the people that are there with him, all the disciples, we, we're going to get an idea who a few of these were. In fact, we know that one of them, the scripture tells us, is Andrew, and possibly John, the, not John the Baptist, obviously, but John, the Apostle John. We're not sure, but it kind of lends to believe maybe that's way, who it is. And then we're going to see that Andrew goes and gets his brother, Simon, who later will be changed name to Peter. And so they're present, these, probably these young men, maybe in their 20s, we don't know, are present here at the baptism of Jesus at some level. Now, maybe Peter's not at the baptism, but maybe immediately after that. So I want to take you to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Now, we studied this a couple of years ago. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 35 through 42. And I would encourage you to, you can get online and you can, you can look at timelines. and It just really helps. I would encourage you to look at maps as well and, and get an idea of Judea and Galilee. And Galilee was really to the, to the north, very far north there in Israel. And that's where Jesus did the majority of his ministry, around the Sea of Galilee. He lived in Capernaum, which was there along the lake, along the sea. He spent very little time in Jerusalem. So here we are, John chapter 1, verse 35 through 42. The next day, now this is the next day after the baptism, it seems like, of Jesus by John. Says the next day, again, John was standing with his two disciples. So we know there's these two men with John the Baptist. And he looks at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Remember the day before he baptizes him, he realizes that he's the Messiah. He's, he's not worthy. He says, Jesus, you should be baptizing me. I'm not, and he tells his, he says, I'm not even worthy to untie this man's sandals. It says the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Obviously, they've been thinking about the Messiah for hundreds of years, right? And so John the Baptist has been talking about it. And obviously, we don't know. We don't have insight to all of this. But John is in the wilderness preaching repentance. He is calling for the nation of Israel and everyone to come and repent and be baptized for their sins. So God is doing something in John. What John realizes about, does he think that Jesus is going to come to him and get baptized? Probably not. But once Jesus comes, John, God gives John the awareness, the realization of, of who he is. And so the two disciples heard him and say this, and they followed Jesus. In other words, did John say, hey, go follow him? Probably, but these guys are like, okay, if that's the Messiah... Then, then I'm, this is, what an incredible moment. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? I, I would ask you this morning, today, if you're not in Christ, if you've not trusted in Christ, 
and you're here, I would, I'd say, what are you seeking? Right? Are you seeking just a good fellowship? Are, are you seeking a place to come and, and, and sing and, and get to know people? I mean, those are all okay things. Seeking some free donuts and free coffee, right? Those are okay too. We'll give them all you want. Are you seeking God? Are you seeking forgiveness for your sin? Are you, are you seeking a love relationship? Are you seeking the creator of the universe? Now, the challenge with some of that, and I don't, we won't go into it this morning, is that Romans, Paul says in Romans, no one is good, no, not one. No one seeks after God. It's like, okay, Pastor Raleigh, you just told me, what am I seeking? I think the reason that we seek after God is because God is working in us and showing us who he is and then has a desire to seek after him. And, and we see that in creation, right? Scripture says in Romans 1, we, we have no excuse because we see it. And so sometimes in our world, we see our, our son get born and we realize that, oh my gosh, this just didn't happen. I'm going to go seek because God has put something in me and I can see that he is a creator and I'm going to go learn more about him. And so I hope that you are here this morning seeking Jesus. And he said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. Now the 10th hour is about four in the afternoon, so it's getting late. Jewish day starts at 6 a.m., so the 10th hour is about four four in the afternoon. One of the two heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. So one of the two we know now is Andrew. So I would always encourage you, if you you write in your Bible, which I encourage you to do that, I don't think it's sacrilegious, circle or mark the names of people because now it's remembering this is Andrew is doing something. He's following, right? He's following after Jesus. And it says there he is Simon Peter's brother. But Simon Peter's not there, it doesn't look like. What's the next verse? He first found his own brother, Simon, and that's going to be Peter, right? Simon Peter, we're going to see that later. And said to him, we have found the Messiah. And can you imagine that moment that Andrew must be dealing with? In all of history of Israel, they've been waiting for the Messiah. And at this particular moment, Andrew has this awareness, this epiphany that they have found the Messiah, that he is in their midst. We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. He brought him to Jesus. He brought Simon, his his brother, to the Lord. Jesus looked at him and said, he looked at Simon, you are Simon, son of John, and you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So now this took place right after the baptism. Now, a lot happens from then in, in, in 13, we're, we're, we're in Mark last week, right after the baptism, and now Mark is going to pick it up in 14, and we're going to jump over a year ahead, okay? It's way in the future, right? And so I want to keep filling that in. So this idea of following, it says they followed him, and we're going to look at this in two different ways this morning. You can follow the teaching of someone, I believe that you follow the teaching of Jesus. If you're a Christian, you should be. That doesn't mean you're physically following him. Like he's here and you're walking with him. So it's possible 
for these disciples to be following Jesus and not be following him and being with him. And when we think about Jesus saying, you know, come and follow me, immediately we think of they're together all the time. In every movie, we see them all together. They're all hanging out together, right? And that's true sometimes when that word is used. Here, I don't think that's what he's meaning. These people, they went and they spent the, the evening with him. They saw where he was staying, right? And they spent the evening with him there. They spent the night there. But then I believe what you're going to see if you study Scripture, they went back to fishing. They went back to their jobs. They had, they had careers. They had jobs. They went back to the Sea of Galilee, and they began to fish, and they had families, and they had to take care of their families. And Jesus goes, and he continues, and he, he probably has some other people with him. We don't know. Disciples that are following him. Disciples are no more than just followers of a teacher, of a rabbi. And he is ministering in what we would say is Judea, kind of the northern area a little bit, but not all the way up in Galilee, but all the area around Jerusalem is Judea. He's ministering there. In fact, we see that the Passover comes and Jesus goes to Jerusalem and, and cleanses the temple. Remember that when he destroys the tables and all things? I believe if you really study closely, all 12 disciples were not with him at that moment yet. In fact, maybe very few of them were there. Maybe he had some other disciples, but, but he was pretty much alone. When he does the first miracle and turns water into wine in Canaan at the wedding, they're not, I don't believe they're all there. And so then we see here, they go back to fishing, and what happens to Jesus? I believe if we look at Mark last week and we look at chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, what's the last thing we read there? It says, "...the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness." And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals and the angels and were ministering to him. We kind of explained what that looked like. So they go back home and Jesus goes in the wilderness. And he's in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted. God is doing his work in his son. All these other things happen. The conversation then, he, he comes back out of the wilderness. Like I said, he, he goes to Jerusalem. He, he has the Passover. He cleans the temple out. He has this conversation with Nicodemus. Remember about being born again? And Nicodemus says, how can you be born again? I think this conversation happens. And once again, the disciples, are not, the, all the apostles are not following him yet. Okay? And I know you're, some of you are probably saying, no, that's not right, Raleigh. No, because I've seen it in the movie. Right? Just study it. If you think I'm wrong, you study it and you come back and tell me, study the Gospels. And then we pick it up in 14 in the Gospel of Mark. Now, after John was arrested, okay, now we're talking about John the Baptist. A year or more later from the baptism, John gets arrested. Not immediately, right? That they weren't there and arresting him because he was baptizing people. That had nothing to do. The Pharisees weren't happy with what he was doing. They had questions about what he was doing. He was telling the people to come and repent. And for the Jews, that was like, what do you mean? We don't, we're the chosen people. We don't need to repent of anything. And what we looked at last week is absolutely they do. And Jesus was saying, no, you, you need to be broken over your sin. And so we move into the future. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Okay, so Jesus has been in Jerusalem. He's been in Judea. He's been the countryside sharing. We don't, we don't see a lot of that. We see some of those things, but part of that life is we don't see it. And now he comes into Galilee after John gets arrested 
by Herod, right? By King Herod, Herod Antipas. There was multiple Herods. There was Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, several. This is King Herod Antipas. If we jump forward here in Mark to chapter 6, verse 17, we see it. He says, For it was Herod who had sent him and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. So here's what's happening. John is continuing to, to, to teach and to, to do these things. He's, now he's probably friends with Jesus, but he's probably not with Jesus. We don't really know their relationship, right? Some people think that, that John was his cousin. We're not really sure. And so John has continued to, John the Baptist has continued to call out sin in, in Israel and to, to, just to admonish them. King Herod was a Jew kind of overseeing Israel in the sense of the Jews. He was under Rome, obviously, but he was kind of over the Jews. Herodias, which is his brother's wife, and actually she'd been married to another brother before that, he takes her as his wife. John the Baptist is saying this is absolutely sinful and and wrong, and he begins to, to hammer Herod for this, publicly saying all sorts of things. And you can imagine that Herod is not about this. And Herodias is definitely, no one likes their sin called out, amen, right? And here's a woman, ladies, you like your sin called out in public? Here's a lady that has lived with three different brothers, been married to three different men, all brothers, and I don't think some of those marriages ever ended. She just went from one to the other to the other. And she now is in love with Herod Antipas and and this guy, this guy, this Jew in the wilderness, and now some prophet, so to speak, he's calling her out, and who knows what he is calling her at this moment, right? We're not going to use those terms probably, but we can imagine. She wants John dead. She wants him taken out. She said, Herod, you need to kill him. Herod, being a very faithful Jew, even though he's sinful in the sense, he's, when I say he's faithful, he's not faithful in all things, he fears God at some level. And he does not want to kill John. He, he knows that John is probably favored by God somehow. I am not killing that dude, right? I got enough problems, I'm not killing. But he arrests him. If I, he's just like, if I can just shut this guy up, maybe my wife will get off my back, right? No offense to ladies there, I'm not trying to, right? And so he arrests him. Now, now, we're not going to get into the rest of it. So John has been arrested, and he stays in prison for a while, and we're, going to, we're not going to see this now, but if you've read Scripture, you're going to know that John gets put to death. He gets beheaded because Herodias' daughter basically dances before her stepfather, and he offers her anything up to half the kingdom, and she said, I want John's head on a platter. And he's given his word publicly, so he has to do that. It's not part of our story, but I wanted to finish that because I know your minds were maybe going there. So here we pick it up in 14. Now, after John was arrested, he came into Galilee. So now he's up. He's not even moved into Capernaum yet, which is really ultimately where he lives, but he's not even there yet. He comes into Galilee, and he begins to minister to people. But here it is in 14 in the Gospel of Mark. A year or so has passed since the baptism. Peter and Andrew and James and John, they're, they're all fishing, right? They know who Jesus is. Probably they've been following his teaching. But remember, they don't have, you know, TV, 24-hour news. 
So if they're not with Jesus, they're really not hearing him. They know he was the rabbi. They know he's out in the wilderness. He's, he's doing things. He's ministering in, in Jerusalem and Judea. And he makes his way to where they live. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Now the people of Galilee, where Jesus does most of his ministries, the Messiah comes, Jesus comes, and he's proclaiming the gospel of God. We looked at that a little bit last week. What's he doing? He's announcing that God has made a way for salvation, that he is the Savior. He is the Messiah. He has come to redeem them from their sin. He is the Messiah. He's proclaiming this. And what is the gospel? It's the good news that God is doing something specifically through Christ to forgive us of our sin, to pay the debt of our sin, right? It's the good news for that. When we talk about the good news, I just want to remind you all the time, the gospel means good news. Good news for what? It is the good news that Jesus came and died a sinless life and rose from the dead to save those that would put their trust in him, sinners like you and I. That is good news. There is no other hope that we can have beyond that that means anything. So, I want to ask you a question this morning as we finish up the rest of our time together. How does God want us to respond to the proclamation of the gospel? I mean, that's the question for us, right? As believers, how do we respond to that? He comes and he proclaims something. Great. There are pastors and and all sorts of people that are proclaiming the gospel. The question is, what is, how does God want us to respond to the gospel? I talk to so many people, so I don't, I don't know that I'm saved. Well, have you responded to the proclamation of the gospel? Which I wouldn't say it that way, right? But I don't know. Have I? <laughs> I mean, we're searching for, because we want to know, what is, what is God asking of us? I think there's, there's some things we can kind of glean from Scripture here in the next few verses that may kind of help us, well, I think really defines for us, not maybe, definitely defines some very critical things that God is asking of us. So once again, verse 14. After John was arrested, he came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. What does that mean? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Let's, let's go to Galatians chapter 4 before I talk about this. Chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, right? So we, we see these words, the time, right? Fulfilled, fullness. It had come. We can see these things, Right? But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. And every one of us is under the law, unless we're under Christ, unless we're in Christ, right? Because we're going to be judged based on the law. Just say the Ten Commandments. So if you've lied, if you've hated, if you've worshipped other things, if you've coveted, if you've lusted, you're guilty. Under the law. Right? And there's more, but I think we're all guilty already, so we don't need to name the rest of Born of a woman. Jesus was born of Mary. Born under the law, right? 
to redeem those who were under the law. So he was born under the law, so he was under the law. But see, here the beautiful thing is what? He never sinned. He fully obeyed the law. So even though he was born under the law, he's not judged by the law because he fully obeyed the law. So that we might receive adoptions as sons. So Jesus has to come, be born under the law, become one of us, take on flesh, live a sinless life, then die so that we can be adopted as sons and daughters. So let's get back. But when the fullness of time had come, or as we read in Mark chapter, 15, or chapter 1, verse 15, the time fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What that all means is that this was the moment in history that God had ordained for Christ to come. Everything was ready for him. It was, the, it was the time. He had done everything. What had he done? He had brought the law. He had rose up his people. He had given them the law. He had sent the prophets. He had said all these things. He had pointed. He would showed us in the law, what's he show us? That we're sinful and that we cannot be good. That's what's really what the law does. It shows us our sin. It's a mirror to our heart and says, wow, we are guilty. We cannot do it. We cannot be good. That's the whole purpose of Israel in many ways. He gives them everything and yet they can't do it. So the world can look in, you and I can look in and says, we are hopeless. If Israel can't do it and they had everything, we cannot be good. We cannot save ourselves. And, and so he had done all that. He had laid all the groundwork. God had laid all the groundwork for that. He had did the sacrificial system to show them that something needed to die. They were, they were aware. They were waiting. They were longing. They were searching for who Jesus was, who the Messiah was going to be. Now, they thought, many of them thought he was going to be a political leader. He was going to overthrow Rome. And obviously, God always does something that we don't expect. And so that's what they're waiting for. And I would say, and I would argue that there was many other things that this is the perfect time. I've shared this before, but, but in that world at that particular moment, it was everybody was speaking Greek. Almost the whole world was Greek speaking. And so it was easy for, for Paul and the apostles to go and preach the gospel everywhere because it was a one common language. In fact, there was roads everywhere. We've said this, all roads lead to Rome. It's because Rome, when they came and they dominated, they put roads in everywhere. And so the apostles could go and they could go all sorts of places and share the gospel. It was the perfect time in that world to be able to have the gospel go forth, to proclaim the gospel. And it was safe because for the most part, Rome kind of kept peace. And so people could go and travel and they could proclaim the gospel. And so when it says the time is fulfilled, it is right. It is now what he's saying. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus has come and the kingdom is there with them, in him, through him, salvation. The kingdom is present now in a way that it's never been, right? That's why when he teaches his disciples to pray, what does he say? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. In other words, the kingdom comes down. And now, and where is the kingdom? In here. In fact, I, I could take you many other places in Scripture. Jesus, it's, it's not a thing that you're going to be looking for. It's not a, it's not a place. It's not a, it's not a rule. It's not a, you know, a, a hierarchy someplace. It's not a civilization. The kingdom of God is in us. It is the believers. It's the Holy Spirit transforming people and making us part of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. A 
okay, so if Jesus is here, it's the perfect time. What does he say, right? Repent and believe in the gospel. So the response, if the kingdom has arrived and it's here and it's the perfect time for that to happen, the only right response, Jesus says, is to repent of your sins and to believe. It's simple. Isn't the gospel simple? I mean, we want to make it so complicated. But really what Jesus says is, look, you need to just remember, you know that you're a sinner and you need to be, have remorse over that. You need to hate your sin. You need to acknowledge it. What do we see in 1 John, right? If you don't admit you're a sinner, you're a liar, and the truth is not in you. And so Jesus is just starting the ministry and says, okay, I came to redeem you, and what I'm redeeming you is from sin. And so the first thing that has to happen logically is that you have to admit you're a sinner. That's it. And then you have to believe in the gospel. What's he mean by that? You have to believe that I'm the one that's going to live a sinless life, and I'm going to redeem you, and I'm the good news. You can, you can, you know, today, you can leave here, and you can You can wail over your sin. You can repent over your sin. But if you do not believe and trust in Jesus, you're just somebody that's now sad over your sin. But you're still not redeemed. You're still not saved. You're just sorry. That's a step. But that's only part of it. You have to somehow become clean, right? And so we must believe in the gospel. And so when we say believe in the gospel, you know, I want to be clear. The gospel is Jesus. He is the gospel. He is the good news. And so when we talk about believing in something, it's like, oh, we're believing in this methodology. That's somewhat true, but really we're believing in a person. We're trusting in a person. And that was true 2,000 years ago, folks, and that is true today. The kingdom of God is at hand. And we must repent and believe. Right? That, that's, it hasn't changed any. Right? And so, I just want to point out four or five things real quick. So what do we see here? So how does God want us to respond to the proclamation of the gospel? It means turning away from our sin. Repent means turning away. This word, you've heard it preached many times. The word repentance means to turn, to turn away. It doesn't mean just to be sorry for something. It means to turn away from something. You can be sorry and still live in your sin. You can continue to sin and sin and sin and just say, well, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but I don't want to quit. That's not repentance. Repentance is having a heart to turn away from it. I don't want that in my life anymore. That doesn't mean you won't struggle with it. I understand that, that no one is going to live sinlessly, but where is your heart? Where, what have you set your heart and your mind to? Like, are you saying, yeah, I know it's wrong, but I'm just going to keep doing it, and I just want Jesus to love me anyway. Okay, I'm not, I'm not here to, to debate whether you're saved or not. I'm just saying that's a red flag in your relationship with Christ. You should hate your sin. And that goes all the way from, you know, committing adultery, sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, having sex outside of marriage, viewing pornography, gossip, right? You name it coveting something that's not yours, worshiping things that you have more than God, I mean, loving things more than him. All those things are sinful, and we should hate those things. Now, that's why we're part of a body, because we want to help each other pull away from those things. So it means turning away from our sin. So how does God want us to respond? The first thing is we've got to realize we're a sinner, right? First John chapter 1. And then turn away from that sin. Don't desire it, right? Take every thought captive and turn away from it. Acts chapter 20, verse 21. It's not going to be on your screen, but he says, 
here he's been talking to the crowds, and this is, I believe this is Paul talking. It says, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Same thing, right? And what does that say? It says repentance and belief is for everybody. Paul is pro- proclaiming this to the Jews and the Gentiles. This is not just for the Jews. And that was a whole big issue with some in the early Judaism, right? They thought, no, we're the chosen people. No, God's plan from all eternity past was to bring Gentiles and Jews together under Christ and create his church. So no matter who you are this morning, the gospel is being presented to you and delivered to you. And the statement that God is saying is, you need to realize you're a sinner. You need to turn from that. You need to believe in my son. That's it. Doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter who you are, your nationality, doesn't matter your age. And so it leads to the next thing I want to share with you is that it means believing and trusting in the gospel. It means believing and trusting in the gospel. Now we've kind of already unpacked that, and I say this all the time because in our culture today, words matter. And the way that a word used to mean something and maybe doesn't always mean that to us today. And so we talk about believing. We say, you must believe. I say all the time, I said, you know, um, I've used this in multiple ways. Do, do you believe that President uh, you know, Obama or President uh, Biden is president? And you know, yes, you do believe that. Do you have a relationship with him? No. Do you trust in him? Well, no, I didn't mean to go there. Sorry. It's not a political message here. That's... You could put any president in there, right? So I'm not dogging him right now. Where we put our trust, what we believe in, right? So belief, I can believe a lot of things. I've said this many times. I can believe that, this is, um, that my car will stop. But unless I go in and go 70 miles an hour and hit the brakes, then I'm trusting it'll stop. Right? So I have to act on that belief. And so sometimes people can say, well, I believe in Jesus, but I'm like, well, have you trusted in him? Well, what do you mean by that? Are you living for him? Are you denying yourself? Are you hate? No, no. Well, then I'm not sure you really believe in him. Because believing in this culture meant more than just an intellectual belief. It meant trusting in. And so here in the, this answer, that's why I want to make sure that it means believing and trusting in. And in that culture, it kind of meant the same thing. But in ours, I think it's different. So I want to make sure that you understand that it is both. The ancient Greek word that Jesus used there to believe means much more than knowledge or agreement. It speaks of a relationship of trust and dependence. All right. Mark first, chapter one of Mark 16 through 18. So now he's in Galilee. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, cast a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Now just think about this for a second. He knows these guys. I don't know how much he's talked to them. He met them a year or so ago. Maybe he's hung out with them in other times. Who knows? Maybe he went fishing with them. We don't know. But he sees these men that he knows. This makes, just when you you understand the history of all this, the text comes alive in a a new way, I think. He passed along the side. He saw Simon and and Andrew, his brother Simon, casting nets in the sea, for they were fishermen. He's kind of letting us know they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me. And I, will make you, and, I will, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Why did they do that? Because they knew him. 
Not because all of a sudden this guy comes along that claims to be the Messiah and they just chuck their nets because, hey, this guy says, I follow him, so I'm going to. I've heard it preached that way. Like, hey, Jesus comes along and says, follow me. And so these guys left. Well, that makes no sense. You wouldn't do that. But if you knew him over a year and you saw what he was doing and you heard and you sat underneath his teaching and you talked to John the Baptist about him and you hung out with him a little bit and now you're working and this guy comes along who's the rabbi who you've been following at least in his teachings and he says, come, Kyle, come and follow me. Kyle's like, yeah, I've been waiting for you to ask. I'm dropping my nets and I'm coming. I mean, that's what's happening here. That's why it says they immediately left. It wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, I need to get to know this guy. I got to do a background check on Jesus, make sure he's, you know, he's not fake. Now they know him. This passage here when it says, I will make you become fishers of men. I just want to say that what he's saying there is, I'm going to train you. I'm going to disciple you. It's not like, yeah, I mean, there's a process that's going to take place in the time we spend together. And I want, you to, I want you to learn how to love people. I want you to learn what it means to, to turn away from your sin and, and what it means to truly believe. He's going to train them up in this way. And that's why he spends all this time with them. This isn't something he just says, boom, you're there. No, he spent time with them. He trains them. And I want to tell you that there's no quick, easy way to make disciples, church. It is spending time together. It is showing each other our, our life. It is sharing scripture together, studying scripture together. It is praying for one another. It is admonishing one another. It is teaching one another how to follow Jesus. It's not simple. You don't get to come to a, a Bible study class and walk away and say, man, I am a disciple maker. No, it's a, it's a process. I love Warren Wearsby, he's a pastor, author. He passed away a few years ago, I think 2019. I want to read you this quote from him. Surely the good qualities of successful fishermen would make for a success in this difficult ministry of winning lost souls. That's the first part of it. So he's, he's just saying, these are fishermen. And notice the first people, because not all the disciples were fishermen. But notice who he calls first. These four guys were fishermen. And if you remember... Three of these guys were his closest friends, which makes sense because they were some of the first ones called, right? Surely these qualities of, he's going to name the qualities here in a second, of these successful fishermen would make for success in a difficult, ministry is difficult, amen? Following Jesus is difficult. Anybody tells you, you come to Jesus, your life's going to get all better, you just need to turn and run from that, right? Because that's a lie. There are some things that are beautiful and that are better, absolutely, sometimes immediately. But the work of ministry and following Jesus is not simple. Then he lists the qualities. Courage. I think the church could use some courage, amen? The ability to work together. Whew. Talk about problems in the church today. Working together putting away our own desires, our own wants, our own ways of doing things. Look, I struggle with it. I don't know if you know, sometimes I want to be in charge. You know, if, and if not, I'll just talk you to death until you finally just let me be in charge, right? I mean, there's sin there, right? Letting go, the ability to work together, delegating, right? 
even, even when, you, when you read the life of the apostles with Jesus, they had trouble working together. Peter and Paul arguing. John Mark, remember in the first missionary journey we talked about last week with, with Barnabas and, and Paul? Trouble working together. John Mark hits the road and he splits, right? Don't know why. Patience. Church, we need lots of patience with each other. You need patience with me. I need patience with you. Energy. Stamina, right? So you need energy, but you also have to have stamina. You've got to be, be able to stay in the game. Faith. Tenacity. A toughness. Then he says, professional fishermen simply could not afford to be quitters or complainers. I love that line. He is picking people that had to work hard, that knew what it was like to be out late all night fishing. They could not quit. They could not complain. They had to work together. He knew who he was fashioning to be able to start his church. He picked men that were going to work hard and had integrity and that were going to do these things. They had energy. They had courage. They spent the night out on boats and probably storms and, and risked their life and worked hard to catch fish. And they could not be quitters because their livelihood depended upon it. Or complainers. Boy, if, you, if the church could just get that down, that we would not be quitters or complainers, we would solve a lot of problems in the church. Just, I want you to go home and be convicted about that today. I will too. Don't quit. And don't complain. Be part of the solution. We can all, I can give you a list of things I can complain about about the church and about you this morning. I could. As a, you could give me a list. Because I'm not perfect. I'm sure you think, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we have trunk or treat? We ought to have trunk or treat. We ought to do this. We ought to do that. You guys aren't doing that right in that ministry. Why'd you put that person in that position? Go start yourself a church. I mean, look, I admit, come to me, talk to me, talk to the elders. We will work at it, try and do better. We got to finish up. So what do we also see? Not only does it mean turning away from our sin and believing and trusting in the gospel, but it means following Jesus. It means following Jesus. Now, what I mean by when I say following Jesus, I think there's it means follow his teaching. It means follow him and what he says. It means be obedient to him. It means if we love him, we'll obey his commands. We follow in our behavior. We follow in our heart. We follow in our mind. We follow in our actions. Everything is about following him. Here, there was a, there was a, a practical thing. They actually let their nets down. They went and followed him, right? There's this picture of, of full obedience. In some respects, we need to do that. There, there's a point in our life that we need to make sure that we're following all of those things. That's why we need to know to follow. We have to know him, though, so we have to study. We have to know the scripture. What is it, where is he going? What's he want for us? How does he want us to live? How do I follow? Well, I, I know that sexual sin is wrong, so I don't view porn. That's following. I don't see with my girlfriend. That's following. I, I, don't, use un, uh, I, don't, I don't use words to tear people down. I only want to use words to build people up. That's following. I love my wife by God's grace the best I can, and that's following. I serve. I give of my resources for the kingdom. That's following. That's what it looks like to follow. I pray. I spend time with God. I read his word. I study. I sit under the teaching of God's word. That's following. I'm in Bible studies. I'm, 
I'm in a discipleship groups. That's following. It's not complicated. Not easy, but not complicated. Nineteen and twenty, last two verses. And going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother who were in their boats, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with hired servants and followed him. Okay, so once again, some people read those things. Here's two more guys he knows. They probably talked to them before, and they leave their dad. If there's any question about, what well, does it mean they left immediately? They left their dad in the boat, it says. Sure, they left immediately. And his hired servants were there. But the reason they did that's because they knew him. And he finally now says, come with me. We're going to go do something crazy. And they trusted him and they left. Right? They put Jesus first. Right? They believed in him. They trusted in him. And so they put him first. That's the next point I want to make. How does God want us to respond to the proclamation of the gospel? He wants us to put Jesus first. And I don't want to get all, you know, there, there's good application here, but I've heard pastors go way off and allergize things and, you know, about all this process, you know. But what does this teach us? It teaches that sometimes you've got to leave things in your life to follow Jesus. They left their, their career. They kind of left their family. doesn't mean they don't love their dad. doesn't mean they don't, it means that, that they put Jesus first. There was something, and I'm not saying all of you need to quit your jobs and go in the mission field. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, but every one of us is a believer. There's a moment that comes in our walk with Christ where he says, come and follow me, and that means you're gonna have to leave something behind. There's gonna have to be something that you let go of. It's the picture. No one can come to Christ and keep everything that was there because everything that we have is worldly. And so when we come and follow, we leave something. And the process of sanctification is the whole lifetime of figuring out what those things are, amen? I've left things in my past 40 years ago because of the grace and mercy of God. I will tell you that the list is only continuing to be revealed to me of all the other things I'm trying to walk away from that are not as simple, I must say. It means putting him first. I want to go back to John chapter 1, kind of that intermittent period of time right after the um, baptism of Jesus a year earlier and read verse 40 for this last point. John chapter 1, verse 40, it says, One of the two of them heard John speak and followed Jesus. It was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah. What did, what did he do? What was Andrew thinking? I got to go tell my brother. because we found the Messiah. Not, oh man, I just want to go be with Jesus. Yes, but we, he went and, and shared the gospel with somebody because he understands the eternal impact that this is making. I've got to tell somebody. 
And so this is the last thing I want to share with you. What does it mean to respond to the proclamation of the gospel? It means sharing Jesus. It means sharing somehow, some way, verbally, a track, praying for, write him a letter. There's all sorts of ways. I know we, it's hard for many of us, but it means sharing Jesus. There's no other way. Romans 10, how will they know unless someone tells them? Living a good life is good, and yes, it does communicate things, but God speaks the world into existence. We confess unto salvation. We admit we're a sinner. We speak. We share the gospel. We talk about Jesus. So, what does it mean to respond to the gospel? It means turning away from our sin. It means believing and trusting in the gospel in Christ. It means following Jesus, conforming our life. It means putting him first. It means letting other things go. And it means sharing Jesus with people. As I close, I want to read Mark chapter 1, verse 15 again. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's for us. That's not just for the early church. That has been for every civilization, every individual since Christ came. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. What's your takeaway? Today, you can respond to the proclamation of the gospel. There's nothing stopping you from repenting and believing. There's no academic scholarship needed. There's no training needed. There's no degree needed. There's no lifestyle needed. There's just responding to the truth that you're a sinner. You cannot save yourself, and you trust in Christ for your salvation, for a new life, and you trust that he will begin to work in you and to pull you out of the mire. It's not going to be instantaneous in many ways, but your trust, your heart is there. That's what it means. And nothing, there's nothing to stop any one of you this morning from doing that. You don't have to go clean up your life. You don't have to go do all of these things. Today, you can admit you're a sinner and say, Father, I'm a sinner. I admit it. I need salvation. I need Jesus in my life, I need his forgiveness, his sacrificial death in my life, and I trust in him that his death was sufficient for my sin, and I'm just, I'm, I want to be found in you. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. Father, I just praise you that the gospel has, you've proclaimed it through your son. You've been clear about what it is. You've been clear about who we are and our need. You've shown us our need over thousands of years of displaying our need for a savior because of our sin. You've, you've clearly demonstrated that we're sinful. We, we can't help it. But you've so graciously made a way for us to be forgiven. And today, the kingdom of God is at hand in this moment, in this place. Your presence is here. And you're calling us 
to turn from our sin and believe in the gospel, to trust in the gospel. And for someone that does not know you this morning, that means that option is available now, that opportunity is available right now in this moment. For those of us who have been following and faithfully, Father, we need to continue to admit we're a sinner and turn from the sin in our life because none of us are sinless. And we need to make sure that we are reminding ourselves and studying and putting our trust in Christ. Father, may you do that in us today. May we come humbly and needy for the grace that you so graciously offer. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I want to thank you all for being here. Don't forget to pick up a shoebox as you guys leave here today. God bless you guys. So the world can look in, you and I can look in and says, we are hopeless. If Israel can't do it and they had everything, we cannot be good. We cannot save ourselves. And, And so he had done all that. He'd laid all the groundwork. God had laid all the groundwork for that. He did the sacrificial system to show them that something needed to die. They were, they were aware, they were waiting, they were longing, they were searching for who Jesus was, who the Messiah was gonna be. Now they thought, many of them thought he was gonna be a political leader, he was gonna overthrow Rome, and obviously God always does something that we don't expect. And so that's what they're waiting for. And I would say, and I would argue that there was many other things that this is the perfect time. I've shared this before, but, but in that world at that particular moment, it was everybody who was speaking Greek. Almost the whole world was Greek speaking. And so it was easy for for Paul and the apostles to go and preach the gospel everywhere because it was a one common language. In fact, there was roads everywhere. We've said this, all roads lead to Rome. It's because Rome, when they came and they dominated, they put roads in everywhere. And so the apostles could go and they could go all sorts of places and share the gospel. It was the perfect time in that world to be able to have the gospel go forth, to proclaim the gospel. And it was safe because for the most part, Rome kind of kept peace. And so people could go and travel and they could proclaim the gospel. And so when it says the time is fulfilled, it is right. It is now what he's saying. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus has come and the kingdom is there with them, in him, through him. Salvation, the kingdom is present now in a way that it's never been, right? That's why when he teaches his disciples to pray, what does he say? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. In other words, the kingdom comes down. And now, and where is the kingdom? In here. In fact, I, I could take you many other places in Scripture. Jesus, it's, it's not a thing that you're going to be looking for. It's not a, it's not a place. It's not a, it's not a rule. It's not a, you know, a, a hierarchy someplace. It's not a civilization. The kingdom of God is in us. It is 
the believers. It's the Holy Spirit transforming people and making us part of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, so if Jesus is here, it's the perfect time. What does he say, right? Repent and believe in the gospel. So the response, if the kingdom has arrived and it's here and it's the perfect time for that to happen, the only right response, Jesus says, is to repent of your sins and to believe. It's simple. Isn't the gospel simple? I mean, we want to make it so complicated. But really what Jesus says is, look, you need to just remember, you know that you're a sinner and you need to be, have remorse over that. You need to hate your sin. You need to acknowledge it. What do we see in 1 John, right? If you don't admit you're a sinner, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. And so Jesus is just starting the ministry out and says, okay, I came to redeem you and what I'm redeeming you is from sin. And so the first thing that has to happen logically is that you have to admit you're a sinner. That's it. And then you have to believe in the gospel. What's he mean by that? You have to believe that I'm the one that's going to live a sinless life and I'm going to redeem you and I'm the good news. You can, you can you know, today, you can leave here and you can, you can wail over your sin. You can repent over your sin. But if you do not believe and trust in Jesus, you're just somebody that's now sad over your sin. But you're still not redeemed. You're still not saved. You're just sorry. That's a step. But that's only part of it. You have to somehow become clean, right? And so we must believe in the gospel. And so when we say believe in the gospel, you know, I want to be clear. The gospel is Jesus. He is the gospel. He is the good news. And so when we talk about believing in something, it's like, oh, we're believing in this methodology. That's somewhat true, but really we're believing in a person. We're trusting in a person. And that was true 2,000 years ago, folks, and that is true today. The kingdom of God is at hand. And we must repent and believe. Right? That, that's, it hasn't changed any. Right? And so, I just want to point out four or five things real quick. So what do we see here? So how does God want us to respond to the proclamation of the gospel? It means turning away from our sin. Repent means turning away. This word, you've heard it preached many times. The word repentance means to turn, to turn away. It doesn't mean just to be sorry for something. It means to turn away from something. You can be sorry and still live in your sin. You can continue to sin and sin and sin and just say, well, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but I don't want to quit. That's not repentance. Repentance is having a heart to turn away from it. I don't want that in my life anymore. That doesn't mean you won't struggle with it. I understand that, that no one is going to live sinlessly, but where is your heart? Where is, what have you set your heart and your mind to? Like, are, are you saying, yeah, I know it's wrong, but I'm just going to keep doing it, and, and I just want Jesus to love me anyway. Okay, I'm not, I'm not here to, to debate wh- whether you're saved or not. I'm just saying that's a red flag in your relationship with Christ. You should hate your sin. And that goes all the way from you know, committing adultery, sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, having sex outside of marriage, viewing pornography, gossip, right? You name it. Coveting something that's not yours, worshiping things that you have more than God. I mean, loving things more than him. All those things are sinful and we should hate those things. Now, that's why we're part of a body because we want to help each other pull away from those things. So it means turning away from our sin. So how does God want us to respond? The first thing is we got to realize we're a sinner, right? 
1 John chapter 1. And then turn away from that sin. Don't desire it, right? Take every thought captive and turn away from it. Acts chapter 20, verse 21. It's not going to be on your screen, but he says, here he's been talking to the crowds, and this is, I believe this is Paul talking. He says, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Same thing, right? And what does that say? It says repentance and belief is for everybody. Paul is proclaiming this to the Jews and the Gentiles. This is not just for the Jews. And that was a whole big issue with some in the early Judaism, right? They thought, no, we're the chosen people. No, God's plan from all eternity past was to bring Gentiles and Jews together under Christ and create his church. So no matter who you are this morning, the gospel is being presented to you and delivered to you And the statement that God is saying is, you need to realize you're a sinner. You need to turn from that. You need to believe in my son. That's it. Doesn't matter your background. Doesn't matter who you are, your nationality, doesn't matter your age. And so that leads to the next thing I want to share with you is that it means believing and trusting in the gospel. It means believing and trusting in the gospel. Now, we've kind of already unpacked that, and I say this all the time because in our culture today, words matter. And, and the way that a word used to mean something and maybe doesn't always mean that to us today, and so we talk about believing, we say, you must believe. I say all the time, I said, you know, um, I've used this in multiple ways. Do, do you believe that President uh, you know, Obama or President uh, Biden is president? And you know, yes, you do believe that. Do you have a relationship with him? No. Do you trust in him? Well, no, I didn't mean to go there, sorry. It's not a political message here. You could put any president in there, right? I'm not dogging him right now. Where we put our trust, what we believe in, right? So belief, I can believe a lot of things. I've said this many times. I can believe that that my car will stop. But unless I go in and go 70 miles an hour and hit the brakes, then I'm trusting it'll stop. Right, so I have to act on that belief. And so sometimes people can say, well, I believe in Jesus. But I'm like, well, have you trusted in him? Well, what do you mean by that? Are you living for him? Are you denying yourself? Are you hate? No, no. Well, then I'm not sure you really believe in him. Because believing in this culture meant more than just an intellectual belief. It meant trusting in. And so here in the, this answer, that's why I want to make sure that it means believing and trusting in. And in that culture, it kind of meant the same thing. But in ours, I think it's different. So I want to make sure that you understand that it is both. The ancient Greek word that Jesus used there to believe means much more than knowledge or agreement. It speaks of a relationship of trust and dependence. All right. Mark first, chapter one of Mark 16 through 18. So now he's in Galilee. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, cast a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Now, just think about this for a second. He knows these guys. I don't know how much he's talked to them. He met them a year or so ago. Maybe he's hung out with them in other times. Who knows? Maybe he went fishing with them. We don't know. But he sees these men that he knows. This makes, just when you, when you understand the history of all this, the text comes alive in a, in a new way, I think. He passed alongside, he saw Simon and Andrew, and Andrew, his brother Simon, casting nets in the sea, for they were fishermen. He's just kind of letting us know they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, 
and I will make you and I will and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Why did they do that? Because they knew him. Not because all of a sudden this guy comes along that claims to be the Messiah and they just chuck their nets because, hey, this guy says, I follow him, so I'm going to. I've heard it preached that way. Like, hey, Jesus comes along and says, follow me. And so these guys left. Well, that makes no sense. You wouldn't do that. But if you knew him over a year and you saw what he was doing and you heard and you sat underneath his teaching and you talked to John the Baptist about him and you hung out with him a little bit and now you're working and this guy comes along who's the rabbi who you've been following at least in his teachings and he says, come, Kyle, come and follow me. Kyle's like, yeah, I've been waiting for you to ask. I'm dropping my nets and I'm coming. I mean, that's what's happening here. That's why it says they immediately left. It wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, I need to get to know this guy. I got to do a background check on Jesus, make sure he's, you know, he's not fake. Now they know him. This passage here when it says, I will make you become fishers of men. I just want to say that what he's saying there is, I'm going to train you. I'm going to disciple you. It's not like, yeah, I mean, there's a process that's going to take place in the time we spend together. And I want, you to, I want you to learn how to love people. I want you to learn what it means to, to turn away from your sin and, and what it means to truly believe. He's going to train them up in this way. And that's why he spends all this time with them. This isn't something he just says, boom, you're there. No, he spent time with them. He trains them. And I want to tell you that there's no quick, easy way to make disciples, church. It is spending time together. It is showing each other our, our life. It is sharing scripture together, studying scripture together. It is praying for one another. It is admonishing one another. It is teaching one another how to follow Jesus. It's not simple. You don't get to come to a, a Bible study class and walk away and say, man, I am a disciple maker. No, it's a, it's a process. I love Warren Wearsby, he's a pastor, author. He passed away a few years ago, I think 2019. I want to read you this quote from him. Surely the good qualities of successful fishermen would make for a success in this difficult ministry of winning lost souls. That's the first part of it. So he's, he's just saying, these are fishermen. And notice the first people, because not all the disciples were fishermen. But notice who he calls first. These four guys were fishermen. And if you remember... Three of these guys were his closest friends, which makes sense because they were some of the first ones called, right? Surely these qualities of, he's going to name the qualities here in a second, of these successful fishermen would make for success in a difficult, ministry is difficult, amen? Following Jesus is difficult. Anybody tells you, you come to Jesus, your life's going to get all better, you just need to turn and run from that, right? Because that's a lie. There are some things that are beautiful and that are better, absolutely, sometimes immediately. But the work of ministry and following Jesus is not simple. Then he lists the qualities. Courage. I think the church could use some courage, amen? The ability to work together. Whew. Talk about problems in the church today, working together putting away our own desires, our own wants, our own ways of doing things. Look, I struggle with it. I don't know if you know, sometimes I want to be in charge. You know, if, if, and if not, I'll just talk you to death until you finally just let me be in charge, right? 
I mean, there's sin there, right? Letting go, the ability to work together, delegating, right? Even, even when, you, when you read the life of the apostles with Jesus, they had trouble working together. Peter and Paul arguing. John Mark, remember in the first missionary journey we talked about last week with, with Barnabas and, and Paul? Trouble working together. John Mark hits the road and he splits, right? Don't know why. Patience. Church, we need lots of patience with each other. You need patience with me. I need patience with you. Energy. Stamina, right? So you need energy, but you also have to have stamina. You've got to be, be able to stay in the game. Faith. Tenacity. A toughness. Then he says, professional fishermen simply could not afford to be quitters or complainers. I love that line. He was picking people that had to work hard, that knew what it was like to be out late all night fishing. They could not quit. They could not complain. They had to work together. He knew who he was fashioning to be able to start his church. He picked men that were going to work hard and had integrity and that were going to do these things. They had energy. They had courage. They spent the night out on boats and probably storms and, and risked their life and worked hard to catch fish. And they could not be quitters because their livelihood depended upon it. Or complainers. Boy, if, you, if the church could just get that down, that we would not be quitters or complainers we would solve a lot of problems in the church. Just, I want you to go home and be convicted about that today. I will too. Don't quit. And don't complain. Be part of the solution. We can all, I can give you a list of things I can complain about about the church and about you this morning. I could. As a, you could give me a list. Because I'm not perfect. I'm sure you think, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we have trunk or treat? We ought to have trunk or treat. We ought to do this. We ought to do that. You guys aren't doing that right in that ministry. Why'd you put that person in that position? <laughs> Go start yourself a church. I mean, look, I admit, come to me, talk to me, talk to the elders. We will work at it, try and do better. We gotta finish up. So what do we also see? Not only does it mean turning away from our sin and believing and trusting in the gospel, but it means following Jesus. It means following Jesus. Now, what I mean by when I say following Jesus, I think there's, it means follow his teaching. It means follow him and what he says. It means be obedient to him. It means if we love him, we'll obey his commands. We follow in our behavior. We follow in our heart. We follow in our mind. We follow in our actions. Everything is about following him. Here, there was a, there was a, a practical thing. They actually let their nets down. They went and followed him, right? There's this picture of, of full obedience, in some respects, we need to do that. There, there's a point in our life that we need to make sure that we're following all of those things. That's why we need to know to follow. We have to know him, though, so we have to study. We have to know the scripture. What is he, where is he going? What's he want for us? How does he want us to live? How do I follow? Well, I, I know that sexual sin is wrong, so I don't view porn. That's following. I don't see with my girlfriend. That's following. I, I don't use un. Uh, I, don't, I don't use words to tear people down. I only want to use words to build people up. That's following. I love my wife by God's grace the best I can, and that's following. I serve. I give of my resources for the kingdom. That's following. 
That's what it looks like to follow. I pray. I spend time with God. I read his word. I study. I sit under the teaching of God's word. That's following. I'm in Bible studies. I'm, I'm in uh, discipleship groups. That's following. It's not complicated. Not easy, but not complicated. Nineteen and twenty, last two verses. And going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with hired servants and followed him. Okay, so once again, some people read those things. Here's two more guys he knows. They probably talked to them before, and they leave their dad. If there's any question about what does it mean they left immediately, they left their dad in the boat, it says. Sure, they left immediately. And his hired servants were there. But the reason they did that's because they knew him. And he finally now says, come with me. We're going to go do something crazy. And they trusted him and they left. Right? They put Jesus first. Right? They believed in him. They trusted in him. And so they put him first. That's the next point I want to make. How does God want us to respond to the proclamation of the gospel? He wants us to put Jesus first. And I don't want to get all, you know, there, there's good application here, but I've heard pastors go way off and allergize things and, you know, about all this process, you know. But what does this teach us? It teaches that sometimes you've got to leave things in your life to follow Jesus. They left their, their career. They kind of left their family. Doesn't mean they don't love their dad. Doesn't mean they don't. It means that, that they put Jesus first. There was something, and I'm not saying all of you need to quit your jobs and go in the mission field. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, but every one of us is a believer. There's a moment that comes in our walk with Christ where he says, come and follow me. And that means you're going to have to leave something behind. There's going to have to be something that you let go of. It's the picture no one can come to Christ and keep everything that was there because everything that we have is worldly. And so when we come and follow, we leave something. And the process of sanctification is the whole lifetime of figuring out what those things are, amen? I've left things in my past 40 years ago because of the grace and mercy of God. I will tell you that the list is only continuing to be revealed to me of all the other things I'm trying to walk away from. That are not as simple, I must say. It means putting him first. I want to go back to John chapter 1. Kind of that intermittent period of time right after the um, baptism of Jesus a year earlier. And read verse 40 for this last point. John chapter 1, verse 40, it says, One of the two of them heard John speak and followed Jesus. It was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah. What did, what did he do? What was Andrew thinking? I got to go tell my brother. because we found the Messiah. Not, oh man, I just want to go be with Jesus. Yes, 
But we, he went and, and shared the gospel with somebody because he understands the eternal impact that this is making. I've got to tell somebody. And so this is the last thing I want to share with you. What does it mean to respond to the proclamation of the gospel? It means sharing Jesus. It means sharing somehow, some way, verbally, a track, praying for, write him a letter. There's all sorts of ways. I know we, it's hard for many of us, but it means sharing Jesus. There's no other way. Romans 10, how will they know unless someone tells them? Living a good life is good, and yes, it does communicate things. But God speaks the world into existence. We confess unto salvation. We admit we're a sinner. We speak. We share the gospel. We talk about Jesus. So, what does it mean to respond to the gospel? It means turning away from our sin. It means believing and trusting in the gospel and Christ. It means following Jesus conforming our life. It means putting him first. It means letting other things go. And it means sharing Jesus with people. As I close, I want to read Mark chapter 1, verse 15 again. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's for us. That's not just for the early church. That has been for every civilization, every individual since Christ came. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. What's your takeaway? Today, you can respond to the proclamation of the gospel. There's nothing stopping you from repenting and believing. There's no academic scholarship needed. There's no training needed. There's no degree needed. There's no lifestyle needed. There's just responding to the truth that you're a sinner. You cannot save yourself. And you trust in Christ for your salvation, for a new life. And you trust that he will begin to work in you and to pull you out of the mire. It's not going to be instantaneous in many ways, but your trust, your heart is there. That's what it means. And nothing, there's nothing to stop any one of you this morning from doing that. You don't have to go clean up your life. You don't have to go do all of these things. Today, you can admit you're a sinner and say, Father, I'm a sinner. I admit it. I need salvation. I need Jesus in my life, I need his forgiveness, his sacrificial death in my life, and I trust in him that his death was sufficient for my sin, and I'm just, I'm, I want to be found in you. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. Father, I just praise you that the gospel has, you've proclaimed it through your son. You've been clear about what it is. You've been clear about who we are and our need. You've shown us our need over thousands of years of displaying our need for a savior because of our sin. You've, you've clearly demonstrated that we're sinful. We, we can't help it. But you've so graciously made a way for us to be forgiven. And today, 
The kingdom of God is at hand in this moment, in this place. Your presence is here. And you're calling us to turn from our sin and believe in the gospel, to trust in the gospel. And for someone that does not know you this morning, that means that option is available now. That opportunity is available right now in this moment. For those of us who have been following and faithfully, Father, we need to continue to admit we're a sinner and turn from the sin in our life because none of us are sinless. And we need to make sure that we are reminding ourselves and studying and putting our trust in Christ. Father, may you do that in us today. May we come humbly and needy for the grace that you so graciously offer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.